some of you will know um, that my time at university was uh, spent studying geography. No laughter, please. Thank you. To be honest, I didn't work that hard as a geographer. I'm slightly ashamed now, but I do look back to see the lack of work that I did. It's unfair to say it's a colouring degree, um, but I didn't do much work. I was far too horizontal about it. And one of the things I worked out pretty early on were ways to cut corners in studying my geography degree. So it's picking the right essay. Maybe it's picking the essay, which means you can read certain books that will apply to other essays too. Bonus. Read one book, does for two or three essays. Transferable. Another one was choosing the right people for group work. Making sure it was people who were going to work hard. People who were going to pull their weight People, perhaps, who were uh, gifted in ways that I wasn't. Another one, though, was reading the abstract, the the paragraph at the start of the paper uh, that sort of sits as a summary of the whole paper, giving you an idea as to where it's all going, giving you the introduction, some of the theory, the method, the results at the end. Eight to nine lines, uh, distillation of the next 20 pages. You didn't have to read the whole thing. You could just read uh, these few lines and it would help you whether it's going to be useful, what the findings and the results were of this little abstract bonus. And as we come to these verses in Acts, it seems that 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 is something that Luke is doing for us. He is giving us a foretaste of what is to come. He is giving us a heads up of what we will see as we go through the book of Acts. In our 13 verses for this evening we will see in microcosm what we will see as we work through the whole book in weeks to come, months to come, the next year. We will see particularly a foretaste of God's plan in verses 1 to 4. And we will see as well, what's quite striking, is the reaction that people have to God's plan. Again, as a foretaste of what's to come. So first point then, Verses 1 to 4, we see a foretaste of God's plan. And God's plan is simply this. It is that all people, everywhere, should hear that Jesus is Lord. And so what you see happening in this little room, locked away in Jerusalem, is a microcosm of what will happen in all of Israel. Here you see it in embryo. That will be developed as the pages move on, as the story goes forward. There are 12 here. I assume there are 12, it's not explicit, but it seems that's most likely. And it seems that they represent the whole of Israel. The 12 fresh with uh, Matthias, we saw last week. It's a a glimpse of what's to come. So do you remember the disciples last week in verse 1? They were told, wait in Jerusalem, there's going to come a moment when the Holy Spirit will descend, when you will be equipped and empowered for what God has called you to do. And so verse 1, the day of Pentecost comes, they were all together in one place and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled. So a few thoughts. Just first one to say is that this is verses 4 to 5 and through to verse 8 happening. Did you remember this restoration of Israel that was promised a couple of weeks ago? They say to him, verse 6, Lord, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So their question has been about restoring the kingdom of Israel. Remember Israel is in exile basically. Bashed and smashed and scattered and exiled. People flung around the world and they're kind of back in the land. But, but there's no temple. There's no real worship going on. The glory's not returned. And Jesus' answer was about the Holy Spirit coming on them. Rather than the kingdom being restored to this place in the land, rather than getting rid of the Romans, rather than getting their land back for themselves, they're going to be sent out. It's not a question of restoration back in. It's a question of being sent out. And though God's Holy Spirit comes and equips them for that. And notice the power they receive it's very striking. We, you read through Acts and you see some astounding stuff go on. You see miracles and power and fantastic things. But what is the power they have? It's power to speak. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So tongues could just mean other languages here. God is empowering and equipping his people for the task that he calls them to. And that is a verbal ministry. In the Old Testament, God would equip his people. With the prophets to speak for him, to proclaim his words. And so here today at Pentecost, their mouths are opened. They speak. Do you remember the structure of Acts? We saw it as we looked down at verse 8. This structure that says, You're going to be my witnesses in, Jude- in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. There are these concentric circles that you see being worked out as you go through Acts. God's people are people of the message. And at each stage you see the word of God spreading and moving on. Notice too it's Pentecost. Pentecost is interesting. Pentecost was a Jewish festival. It was also known as the festival of weeks. In the Greek it's called Pentecost, which is why we have it as Pentecost. But it was a time they remembered a number of things. They remembered the law being given at Sinai. The Mosaic covenant coming in. The time of, of wind and fire, if you know your Old Testaments. Time of the Mosaic Covenant being inaugurated. But also it was their harvest festival. We've had a great time today with a harvest barbecue. We've had uh, lots of people from the local area um, eating uh, burgers and all that kind of stuff. And it's been great to remember God's provision. God's provision for uh, us in our, our food, but God's provision for his people, his goodness, providing a saviour as well. And this was their harvest festival at Pentecost. Also known as a festival of reaping. Also known as the day of the first fruits. And so you wonder, as, as Luke is writing about Pentecost, is he wanting us to join the dots to see what's going on? This is the inauguration of a new covenant, a a new era for God's people. There are sort of parallels with the Mosaic covenant at Sinai. And as well, is this a new harvest being reaped? Is this the first fruit of something more to come? So in these four little verses, you just get a foretaste of God's plan. We will see it worked out as the pages roll on and as the story continues. The next bit, though, is people's responses, verse 5 to 13. It's striking because there's more, there's more time on people's responses 
than on what actually happens. Just because God does something amazing, it doesn't mean people will believe it. There's this miraculous outpouring of God's Spirit. It's a pretty unique event, it seems to me, in, in the Bible. There are these astounding events going on. But there's a mixed response. Striking, isn't it? We shouldn't be surprised at that. Sometimes people say, well, if I, if I saw God do something amazing, if I heard him clearly for myself, then I would believe. But, but they saw God do something amazing in Jesus, and they heard him for themselves. And what did they do to him? They, they killed him. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that there are different responses to God doing this outpouring. Look at how they responded to the very word of God. So the disciples, verse 5, by now have poured out onto the streets. And Luke writes, Now now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? You see, it's Pentecost. It's a Jewish festival. Dispersed people from all over the world are uniting together in one place to remember God providing for them. They're gathering to worship. They're converging in on Jerusalem. Jews who speak different languages from the east, you would have those who knew Aramaic. From the west, you would have those who spoke Greek. But whoever they are, They can hear the words perfectly. They can understand what's being said. It's miraculous. It's a miraculous foretaste of what will happen. God wants his church to be telling the nations about Jesus. All people, everywhere, from all kinds of backgrounds, with all kinds of stories, all kinds of skeletons in the closet, that Jesus is Lord. All sorts of ethnic and religious and language barriers worldwide hearing about the risen Jesus. That they need forgiveness for ignoring him. They need a new start, a relationship with him. But it's striking, isn't it? Because this was a crowd of Jews. These were God's people meeting together hearing of God's miraculous deeds. That is the pattern you will see again and again in Acts. We see it as you look at the whole book, because you start off in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. It shapes the book, but also shapes the stories. You'll see particularly with Paul, he he will head, first of all, for the large part of the book, to the synagogue, and speaks to the people of the book, And tells them that their Messiah has arrived. And then he goes to the Gentiles when he's booted out of the synagogue. Those of you who are around last year as we were doing our evenings, we are going through Romans. Do you remember? It talks about the gospel being first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. So it's striking that first of all we have the Jews meeting together and something happens to them. It's striking too because what better mission strategy is there? You wait for them all together, all to come and worship God, and you turn their lives upside down, and you send them off again, back home, with a message. 
gossiping the gospel as they go. It was a miraculous foretaste of what God wants the church to be doing. Now, I don't think we can expect that kind of miraculous stuff every day. The gift of instant fluency in languages isn't generally how God does stuff today. What we expect today is to have to do the hard graft and to learn languages, to go, to tell people about Jesus, to work at translations in Bible. Think of Wycliffe um, just down the road on the M40, making the Bible accessible, getting the, the word of God out there, translating it so people can read it. Now you do hear rare testimonies of of missionaries who have temporarily enabled to speak a language. seems that God can do that if he wants to. Not the usual way he does it now. But he did then. And the other thing to say here as well, I think it's striking that this is a a unique um, story in the Bible. There's something quite special going on um, in the big picture of the Bible story. This, This is, I think it's the Tower of Babel turned on its head. Did you remember the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11? Here we have man seeking to show how great he is, trying to make an assault upon heaven without God, so that he might make a name for himself. And so the Lord comes and disperses them and judges them so they can't understand each other. They're not able to communicate, they're not able to work together. And yet here, the opposite happens. They're gathered and they can understand From all corners of the globe, verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. It's striking that phrase, verse 11, the wonders of God. I think that's a packed theological term. If you read back through the Old Testament and you think about that, it's a phrase with a history because in the Old Testament it always referred back to God rescuing his people from Egypt. They were the wonders of God, saving a people for himself from slavery through the Exodus. And so what are the wonders of God that they're declaring? Well, I take it after 40 days of being with Jesus and appearing to them and teaching them and training them and explaining and clarifying his, his death and resurrection, then the, the wonders of God they are declaring are now the message of Jesus. What he's done. Why? I take it too, it'll be some of what we'll see next week in the end of chapter 2, as Peter addresses the crowd and, and explains the era they're in now of salvation history, why Jesus died, why he rose again, rose again, why it matters. And so, some are amazed, verse 7, and some are perplexed, verse 13, and some laugh. Which is striking, isn't it? I think it's still the same kind of reactions we get today. Maybe it's friends or family or colleagues or neighbours or just open doors that the Lord provides for you. And you, you sort of stutter out something of the, the wonders of God, something of 
what Jesus has done and why it matters. And some are amazed and some are perplexed and some just laugh. Here we have people supernaturally speaking in other languages, praising God. And yet folks think they are drunk. People will always look to get rid of stuff they don't like. They will always look to explain away stuff that God is doing. Explain away God's acts of power. Again and again as we'll see it unfold, as you go through Acts, you will see people seeking to explain away God's mighty deeds. It's the bent of the human heart. When we encounter the God who made us, his acts in history, we run a mile. Just a few thoughts as we draw things together. We think through what some of this might mean for us in terms of application. And I guess stuff that might fuel our prayers as well as we meet um, in a bit. And perhaps we'll get into small groups and we'll uh, pray for one another, some of these things. Um, first one to say is, know or see that God empowers you to do what he calls you to do. He will equip you and he will enable you. He opened their mouths and the right people heard. He made that happen. It's not as if we have to do it on our own. We, he doesn't say, go and get on with it. He comes with us and he equips us. He miraculously helped them open their mouths. I think it God will empower us to do what he calls us to do. The tasks that he calls us for. Secondly, it's striking. He is, particularly in, he is particularly concerned with what we say. I find that interesting. We are to be people of the word. People who speak the gospel. People with a message. His mighty wonders we take. Through a word. Through a story. Seems to me, in many ways, it's much easier to love people. And we must do that. But, but at times, it's much harder to, to break through the barrier and to speak to them of Christ, of his gospel. His mighty saving wonders are for them. They need to hear about them. Thirdly, I say I'm not a great fan of sort of strategy and that kind of thing, in one sense, but this was a crackingly strategic time for the Holy Spirit to come, wasn't it? All these people together, all at the same time, and then he reveals himself to them and sends them on their way with the gospel going with them. And it seems lots of acts is seemingly unplanned, so people are persecuted and they run a mile and... They suffer and they scatter and the gospel goes. From a human perspective, that's not sort of strategic. That wasn't what they planned to do. But I'm struck by the fact that when people gather, there is an opportunity to, to take a message which then they then take with them. So we ask, are there gathering places in our community? Are there opportunities we might have where people get together and we can potentially open our mouths and speak to them of Christ? A few weeks ago we had our rededication service and we spoke in the morning of, of doing what we love and taking Jesus with us. Are there opportunities where people will gather 
And we take a message, and then they take it with them as they go. Fourthly, in terms of application, different people respond in different ways. That's hard to take, isn't it? Because there'll be people that we love, who we long to trust Christ for themselves. But people hated Jesus and they killed him despite and because of the clarity with which he spoke of God. People miraculously heard truths and saw astounding things, but they mocked and they argued it away. I think we're just called to be faithful and God does the fruit. All kinds of people gathered, a melting pot for the nations. And different people responding in different ways. And fifthly, just to say as well that the language is a key. Languages are still key. That is, the gospel is still going to the ends of the earth. There are still tongues who do not have the message of Jesus. Still people who are unreached. It may be that you're gifted in languages. It may be that you're willing to learn languages. It's best if you're both. But I'm struck by the fact that there may be someone here this evening who has that kind of gift, who may just be the right person to take the message of Jesus to another bit of the ends of the earth. Might he be sending you there? Who knows?